There's a Chinese phrase, troubles at home, dangers from abroad, which describes a state of affairs likely to bring about the downfall of a dynasty. The Japanese were reminded of it by their situation in the middle of the 19th century. History is the most important tool for change. In order to improve ourselves, we must look into our past to understand our shortcomings and our achievements. Sometimes events and people are lost and not taught in schools. Join me as I take a look into human history and rediscover these people and events that have shaped our lives and find out why we're here. The political climate becomes tense, terrorism shoots to the stage, betrayal becomes the dynasty's downfall. Welcome to Why We're Here podcast, and I'm your host, Garrett Shields. In the conclusion to the Tokugawa rule, I will discuss the main events and people crucial to their final years as the nation's leaders. Part 1 goes into the backstory of the Japanese feudal system and the culture of the country before the West started taking a vested interest in Japan. If you're aware of how feudal Japan operated in the Tokugawa period, you don't necessarily have to listen to part one, but I still believe there is some valuable information to take away from it, and to understand the tone for this episode. My source for this episode and the last one comes from the book The Rise of Modern Japan by W.G. Beasley. With a few exceptions, Japan had tried to retain its seclusion from the world as a way to keep control of its people. But as the West began to show more interest and the war in China intensifying, the Japanese became divided on staying secluded and trading for new technologies. After China's defeat in the Opium Wars, Bakufu officials feared that Japan would be the next target by the West, so they began to make treaties with some of the outsiders. These treaties sparked an anti-foreign movement that resulted in terrorism as a means to expel the Western representatives from their country. However, the West had more military might to resist, so the radicals shifted their focus toward changing the political structure to one more emperor-centric. The division between the elite and samurai caused power struggle between foreign trade and isolation, which resulted in the fall of the Tokugawa, leading Japan toward modernization. In the early 17th century, the Tokugawa rulers had closed off connection with Western countries because they believed that any dissidents could align with a military that was not under Bakufu control. They were also very critical against Christianity and believed that open borders would invite, quote, corruption into the country. Trade with foreign nations was ended except through minor interactions with Chinese drunk traders and a Dutch post at the Nagasaki port at Dashima. This was the start of the, quote, closed country policy called Sakoku. The Bakufu restricted outside contact by permitting the Dutch and Chinese merchants to travel within the country under Japanese supervision. They also asked for outside information of Europe and Asia, but it was limited by the Edo government. Books and tools that could improve Japan were imported, even though they would be criticized for their Christian influences. The people of Japan were also forbidden to leave the country under threat of death. Essentially, they were cut off from the world past East Asia. The Dutch at Deshema became a curiosity for the Japanese as the only contact with Europe. However, after a hundred years or so, their suspicions and their animosity toward the West subsided slightly. The censorship continued, but anything considered politically neutral, such as art, medicine, and cartography, was allowed to be imported. Other Western countries, like England and Russia, had shown interest in Japan over the years, but their respective governments did not officially sanction their encounters. The financial problems of the mid-19th century, discussed in Part 1, did not trouble Japan too much, although there was uneasiness in the atmosphere. These problems intensified as foreign warships began to appear in their harbors. 
This led to a shift to study the West through English and Russian languages by the Bakufu interpreters. Much of the translated works from the West were military sciences and technologies that came from the books imported through Deshima, which were attributed to, quote, Dutch scholars. There were disagreements over whether Western works should be brought in at all. The supposed threat from abroad and its resolution were the topics of discussion among the higher-ranked samurai. Mito scholar Aizawa Seishise set the tone for debates with his book Shinran, or New Proposals. Published in 1825, he wrote that in order to defend Japan, they must expel the barbarian by bringing the ruling class together to honor the emperor. This unity would promote national wealth and strength by restoring agriculture and reviving the samurai's military potential. He argued that the West used religion, quote, to deceive and delude the people. Japan must protect itself from the Dutch scholars to prevent delusions from the West to cause Japan unable to resist attack. These deceptions, he argued, came from, quote, novel gadgets and rare medicines which delight the eye and enthrall the heart, end quote. Motoori from Part 1 and his view of divine hierarchy was also applied to the country's superiority over the West, yet the Dutch studies could still be learned. The largest proponent for Western learning came from the samurai military expert and Edo official Sakuma Shosen. He studied Dutch and Western gunnery and argued that Japan must purchase modern weaponry to be trained and ready for any attack. In 1849, he urged his domain to use a Dutch-Japanese dictionary to translate the Dutch books, as it was necessary, quote, to know one's enemy. The following year, he went to the Bakufu to press his case by arguing that to avoid ending up like China after the Opium War, Japan must mimic the West by incorporating foreign learning in order to become stronger. Sakuma introduced a new slogan to combat the one used by Aizawa, quote, Eastern Ethics, Western Science. He wanted to defend a country rather than the culture by using Western technology to strengthen their military and be taken more serious by the rest of the world. However, an anti-foreign fanatic assassinated Sakuma in 1864, leaving his students to carry his legacy. Another supporter of Western learning was Sato Nabuhiro, who learned Dutch while working as an advisor on agriculture, forestry, and mining. He applied what he learned to study Western science and planned to promote Japan's economy by increasing foreign trade and planting colonies on the Asian mainland. The defeat of China in the Opium Wars, however, changed his mind on the last point. He also gave his idea through one of his books on how Japan's government should be structured. He believed it should be composed of six specialized departments, two of which would be the army and navy and the rest focused on the economy. In his books, he also suggested that the population should be divided by hereditary class through function. Education in the country would train the children to serve the state, while universities would provide higher learning for the privileged and talented. The Opium War in 1840 had increased Western merchant ships and naval squadrons in the area, which increased Japan's fear that there could be a move against them at any time. The Dutch representative at Deshema warned that seclusion could not continue. A decade later, a U.S. naval force approached Japan, and the commander of the fleet requested a treaty carrying letters from the president. As Japan's war continued through 1856, the Bakufu began to reconsider Japan's position and believed a trade agreement would prevent an attack. The policymakers were ignorant of the population's debate over this matter. A senior counselor, Abe Masahiro, sent the letters from the U.S. to other high-rank officials, knowing that the feudal lords were debating over foreign policy. He had hoped to reach an agreement, but it actually revealed the divide among them, with many replying with the same old arguments, such as criticism of Christianity and a call for seclusion. Tokugawa Nariaki Amito believed that Edo should announce war, even without intending the act, as a way to boost morale and reject the West. 
On the other side, Ienosuke urged for trade in order to boost Japan's strength with a Western-style navy, and a treaty would buy time to enact this policy. In the 1840s, there were official attempts by the West to negotiate treaties with Japan, but interests by Britain and Russia were less than America's. The U.S. was becoming a power in the Pacific, and the building of a transcontinental railroad was envisioned to expand into Trans-Pacific with a steamer route to China that would make Japan the center of a shipping lane. Japan was seen as a potential coaling station on the route, so the U.S. was determined in its approach for a treaty. Washington, D.C. announced to the world that an expedition in 1852, led by Commodore Matthew C. Perry, would be sent with a substantial fleet. European and American journals conveyed their views of a secluded Japan. Quote, the compulsory seclusion is a wrong not only to themselves, but to the civilized world. But they must not abuse that right to the extent of debarring all other nations from a participation in its riches and virtues. End quote. Perry arrived at Uraga in July 1853 with the previously mentioned letters. The first was from the president, who asked for a commerce deal, return of shipwrecked sailors, and an establishment of ports for fueling vessels. The second was from Perry himself, who used less-than-kind words, threatening Japan that peace could not happen if they remained hostile to the U.S. He left with hopes of an agreement by the time he returned next year, but he also hinted that he would have a larger fleet. February 1854, eight U.S. ships sailed under Perry's command into Edo Bay, and with inadequate defenses, the Bakufu told their negotiators to persuade Perry to leave without confrontation. Perry refused, so negotiations began. An agreement was reached on March 31st, which opened ports at Shimoda and Hakodate, where U.S. ships could retrieve stores from Japanese officials. They also argued for a consul to be appointed in the future, and trade provisions would be debatable. This convention laid the groundwork for future agreements by others to build upon. Townsend Harris from the U.S. was later sent to Shimoda to form a proper treaty. He arrived in August 1856, and by May 1857, he wrote in his journal that no U.S. warship had been there since his arrival. He disagreed with the treaty terms offered to the Dutch and Russians by Japan, which only removed some of the restrictions on annual trade and replaced the port at Shimoda with one at Nagasaki. Harris saw those treaties as a, quote, modest liberalization of the operations in Deshima. In early December, Harris arrived in Edo to meet with the shogun, Hata Masayoshi, and had little difficulty obtaining approval for his main draft of proposals. It was more troublesome to draft the treaty because the Japanese negotiators were hesitant over the details. But after exasperated debates, Harris got his way. A U.S. representative would be allowed to reside at Edo. Trade would be free from intervention with lower tariffs. Americans in Japan would remain under U.S. law, and five ports were to be opened over the next few years. However, on February 14, 1858, the Bakufu told him they were not ready to sign due to fighting among the feudal lords, and he would have to wait for the emperor's approval. The Treaty of Tientsin was signed between China and the British and French, which prompted Harris to travel to Kanagawa to press for his treaty to be signed. A counselor in Edo was formed within hours, and the newly appointed regent, Ianaosuke, signed the treaty on July 29, 1858. The Dutch and Russians made similar agreements the following month. The British sent Lord Elgin, who anchored off Edo, to make a similar agreement, but with an added, quote, most favored nation clause that would automatically give Britain any privileges made by other countries. The French envoy shortly followed suit. Ianaosuke knew that by signing the treaties, he was contradicting the emperor's wishes, so he quickly suppressed the opposition by removing Hota and any opposing Edo official in early August. He made an announcement that the new shogun would come from the closest blood relative to the key branch of the Tokugawa. 
He turned out to be a 12-year-old boy donning the name Aimochi. This move was in opposition to the support of appointing Hitatsubashi Kaiki as heir to the shogun. Lords against the Bakufu were forced into retirement or placed under house arrest while their retainers were imprisoned, exiled, or executed. An Edo counselor, Manabi Akikatsu, was sent to Kyoto in October to speak with the emperor. He failed to change his mind, so Manabe moved to threats toward imperial advisors who opposed him. A compromise was reached on February 2, 1859, in which the emperor promised restraint while the Bakufu prevented the ports at Hiago and Osaka from opening, and the treaties would be revoked at an unspecified future date. Manabe's mission alienated the samurai who were critical of the Bakufu's actions against their lords or friends. They saw the Bakufu as weak and subservient to the foreigners, and Ianaosuke as the worst offender of samurai sins, quote, complacent to the strong, tyrannical to the weak, end quote. The samurai turned the phrase, honor the emperor, expel the barbarian, into radical slogans against the shogun and Edo. Some teachers became the leading opponents to the shogun, instructing students of the weakness performed by the bakufu over foreign threats. One such teacher was Yoshida Shoen from Yamaguchi. Born in 1830, Yoshida made connections with Mido scholars throughout his life. In 1854, he tried to stow away on one of Perry's ships during his second visit. He wanted to study abroad and saw outside knowledge that could help defend Japan. But Yoshida was discovered and handed over to the Bakufu, who imprisoned him shortly before sending him to house arrest. He was allowed to continue teaching and used his position to discuss Japan's only opportunity for salvation was through the poor men rising up, led by the lower class samurai who were loyal to the emperor. However, Yoshida did not think it should be a coordinated seizure of power or to replace the government. Instead, he believed that actions such as sacrifice or jeopardizing the country by, quote, men of spirit, called shishi, would unite the people to defend the nation. The first demonstration of his philosophy was a planned assassination of Manabe. Yoshida, though, was found, tried, and executed before this could be carried out, but it only increased his reputation among his supporters. Kyoto was re-emerging as a center of politics after centuries in Edo's shadow. It became a refuge for activists who felt protected by the imperial court and saw an influx of mostly young samurai who abandoned their families and lords without consent. They risked punishment and loss of rank seeking to overthrow the regime. These younger ones were unorganized fanatics, primed for violence and inspired by Yoshida. On March 24, 1860, a group of these radical samurai murdered Ianasuke outside the gates of Edo as a response to his, quote, dishonor of Japan. A decade of assassinations of officials followed, who increased their guards. But the radicals thought they could still influence policy by sending the ears or heads of the officials' subordinates. Foreigners were also subject to attack, and the treaties were the fuel to their fire. The radicals hoped to reverse the treaties by implementing terrorist attacks, which may result in foreigners taking action. The assassination on March 24th was part of a failed plot to attack the settlement at Yokohama and seize Kyoto. There were other attacks at Yokohama prior to Ianasuke's murder that involved the deaths of two Russians in 1859 and a Dutch merchant captain a year later. In January of 1861, Townsend Harris's secretary was murdered as well. Later that year, a British legation at Tozenji was also attacked, which led to a part of the British squadron in China to transfer to Japan. The terrorists succeeded partially by making foreign policy the main focus for Japan during 1862 to 1864. The Bakufu used the increase in problems as a tool to extract concessions from the West. They said that trade made it hard on the samurai families as commodities rose, which was the cause of the civil unrest. The attacks could be stopped, given time, but not as long as the ports remained open. 
British Representative Rutherford Alcock was skeptical, but he conceded after another assassination attempt on a Shogun Council member. On June 6, 1862, an agreement was signed in London to postpone opening future ports or cities to foreigners until 1868, and other Western countries followed. Unfortunately, news traveled slowly to Japan, and an anti-foreign attack occurred in September involving a British visitor. Charles Richardson was killed after failing to move off the road for Satsuma representative Shimazu Hitsumitsu and his entourage. The British demanded that troops be enacted for revenge, which forced Edo to order Satsuma to surrender the samurai responsible. Satsuma refused and stated that the samurai was right in accordance to their customs and deserved no punishment. Foreign representatives pressed for their country's rights under the treaties and had the military resources to protect their interests. The British demanded a formal apology, payment of £100,000, and for Satsuma to execute the samurai and pay £25,000, or the Royal Navy would be called to set a blockade, retaliate, or both. Quote, Japan had committed a barbarous outrage. Reparation for it was peremptorily demanded, and if it were to be refused, making necessary a resort to arms, the penalty imposed, now computed in thousands, will inevitably expand to millions. End quote. Satsuma remained silent over the matter as the Bakufu paid the first installment in June of 1863. A month later, a British naval squadron moved from Yokohama to Kagoshima Bay to force compliance with their ultimatum by engaging in battle with shore batteries and claiming three steamers as compensation. Both the city and the British suffered casualties, yet both claimed victory. After a year, Satsuma, quote, paid through the Bakufu and promised punishment for Richardson's murder, but despite the perpetrator's known whereabouts, nothing more was done or said. The Bakufu court unity, discussed later, agreed to, quote, exclude the foreigners from Japan after June 25, 1863. The Bakufu saw this as an opportunity to negotiate the closing of the treaty ports, or at least the one at Yokohama. The loyalists in Choshu, however, saw it as the signal to force the West from Japan. So on the night of June 25th, steamers from Choshu opened fire on a U.S. ship in the Shimonoseki Straits. In early July, shore batteries fired upon Dutch and French vessels, and by the end of the month, the Shimonoseki Straits were closed to foreign ships. Then in May 1864, foreign representatives to Japan were told to act toward reopening the Straits. Alcock interpreted this as making an example of Choshu to end the anti-foreign attacks. On September 5th, a combined fleet of 17 western ships bombarded the shores in the straits, and over the next two days, soldiers captured the emplacements and destroyed the enemy's weapons. Choshu called for a truce and allowed passage to continue through the Shimonoseki Straits, also agreeing to pay for damages. A convention was signed that arranged for the Bakufu to pay $3 million over six installments. The terrorist attack upon foreigners and Bakufu officials had a common goal. The first was to try and take over the imperial court by appealing to the emperor's anti-foreign sentiments. The second was to use the court's influence to receive cooperation among the domain lords. And finally, to force Edo through threat of military action to forego the treaties and fall in line with the emperor. The terrorists wanted to replace the shogun and keep the Tokugawa house as just great lords, but there were no further plans if this were to come about. Anti-West terrorism began a power struggle between multiple groups, with the anti-foreign movement as an extreme one. However, this movement, which was made of low-ranked samurai and families of village headmen from western and southwest Japan, was too scattered to be considered a party. They did have many sympathizers among the middle and high-ranked samurai who could influence their lord's plans, or were bureaucrats within the domains themselves. Edo sought to make a settlement between the daimyo and the court due to the two opposing groups that threatened the bakufu. 
The, quote, reforming lords outranked Bakufu counselors and could influence the imperial court. The men of spirit would normally be suppressed, but any force could cause unpredicted resistance from the domains. So in 1860, a marriage was arranged between the young shogun, Aimochi, and the emperor's sister, Kazunomiya. Then in October 1862, the alternate attendance rule was relaxed, and the great lords were allowed to, quote, advise the shogun. This Bakufu court unity did not stop the anti-foreign movement, however, because the Choshu attacks and the decree to remove foreigners from Japan, the activists in Kyoto became ambitious. Many of the samurai activists were appointed ceremonious titles in the imperial court, for example. In September 1863, they planned to nominate the emperor as head of the movement as he made an official tour to the shrines at Ise. This would give them a reason to become a loyalist army, but Shimazu Hisamitsu worked with a delegation from Aizu to stop it. On September 30th, units from Satsuma seized the palace and removed the Choshu guards. Shimazu is held responsible for the change in the power balance in Kyoto after he arrived with 15,000 men and claimed position on the court as policymaker. The shogun traveled to Kyoto to strengthen the Bakufu Satsuma role, and there, Shimazu explained that there should not be any more talk of foreign expulsion or closing of ports. Hitatsubashi Kaiki, who was passed as the shogun's heir, disagreed by explaining that the court's prestige would be destroyed if they reversed positions. He believed that they should continue negotiations to close the port at Yokohama to show their loyalty to the emperor. Quote, Hitatsubashi won his point, but broke up the daimyo coalition in the process. End quote. Hitatsubashi and Shimazu fought violently over their beliefs, supplanting them as the spokesmen for pro-bakufu and anti-bakufu points, respectively. The events previously mentioned at Kagoshima Bay and the Shimonoseki Straits shifted aspirations of expulsion into a tactical tool. Most samurai were persuaded that there needed to be something more to defend Japan. Saigo Takamori and Okobo Toshimichi from Satsuma and Kido Koen and Takasugi Shinsaku from Choshu emerged as leaders committed to redefining the Mido slogan, Wealth and Strength. They believed wealth could come from trade while strength could be obtained through Western technology. Actions should be made by the domains, not by individual terrorism, and the men of spirit should let go of pride and trust the bureaucrat and politician. In Satsuma, Choshu, and Tosa, the samurai of middle rank began a new direction toward anti-Tokugawa by embracing the surviving Shishi and challenging the Bakufu instead of the treaties. The West was too strong to be expelled, so they began to debate the shogun's ability to continue as leader. Hitatsubashi surrounded himself with those determined to keep the Bakufu, and they worked with those who represented dangers from abroad to suppress the troubles at home. France offered to aid against the enemies of the Bakufu, but a direct intervention would be disastrous. Edo arranged to establish a small shipyard and iron foundry at Yokohama and a dockyard at Yokosuka financed by the profits from the Franco-Japanese silk trade. To assert the shogun's authority, the Bakufu urged the court to punish Choshu for a failed siege against Kyoto back in August of 1864. Troops were assembled, but Choshu agreed to the punishment the following January before fighting could occur. Before a truce between Choshu and the Bakufu could be made, Tagasugi and Kido, joined with anti-foreigners, overthrew the pro-Bakufu party and took the daimyo as prisoners. This led to a second expedition against Choshu in May of 1865 with the shogun personally in command. While this was in preparations, Okubo and Saigo took control of Satsuma and acted as middlemen for purchasing foreign arms from Belgium for Choshu. This cooperation between Choshu and Satsuma provided a secret alliance between Kido and Saigo in March 1866 to overthrow the Takagawa. 
They provided an organized armed force against the Bakufu and gave Choshu confidence to ignore the ultimatum to submit. The result was a military assault against Choshu that July from the north and east on land, an invasion by sea from the west. The Bakufu had more soldiers even without Sasuma's help, but Choshu was able to hold them back with greater military skill from Takasugi. By the end of the summer, the Bakufu's forces were driven back, and the death of the shogun in September ended the campaign. The following January, Hitatsubashi became shogun, donning a new name, Yoshinobu. He met with French minister Léon Rocher. They discussed the reorganization of the Bakufu by reforming the central bureaucracy, reforming the military, creating tighter control over the domains, promoting industry and commerce, and restoring Bakufu dominance. This would become the blueprint for the future Meiji government that followed. After the Bakufu's defeat, Yoshinobu's dealings with Rocher became more urgent as anti-Tokugawa confidence rose. He decided to demonstrate his authority by blocking Satsuma's attempt to be pardoned by the imperial court. Saigo, Okobu, and Kido began developing a coup d'etat before the Bakufu could get stronger. Many domains, however, were uneasy of a coup because any outcome would still leave power to discordant parties. Leaders from Tosa wanted to keep the moderate voice alive, so they drafted proposals that July that requested the shogun to step down and join the ranks as a great lord. They also provided plans for a bicameral council, with the upper chamber consisting of the daimyo and the court nobles, and samurai and commoners filled the lower chamber. Quote, it would conduct affairs in line with the desires of the people and negotiate fresh treaties with the West on basis of reason and manifest justice. End quote. Yamauchi Yodo used this proposal in September to press Yoshinobu to resign, which he considered because although he would lose his rights in office, the Tokugawa lands would still be his and he could avoid a civil war. So on November 9, 1867, Yoshinobu made the decision to resign his privileges to the emperor, then fully resigned as shogun ten days later. This sparked debates and lobbying at the court, which caused troops to be sent to Kyoto under the command of Saigo. A council was summoned that following January, excluding the opponents to the coup, and they issued a decree that stripped Yoshinobu of his power and gave it to the emperor. This was the shift into the Meiji Restoration, which returned administrative power back to the Meiji emperor, Mutsuhitu. The weeks that followed, an imperial army moved east through the domains as the daimyo surrendered one by one without resistance. The army reached Edo in early April, and surrender terms were negotiated. The shogun was to go into retirement, and the head of the Tokugawa's successor would keep 700,000 koku of land, just under Satsuma. The domain Aizu rejected this outcome and continued the fight in the mountains around Wakamatsu for an additional six months. The lord finally surrendered at the start of November, and the remaining northern lands followed. The last thousand or so supporters of the Tokugawa escaped by sea to Hokkaido and stayed until June of 1869. Japan's attempt to exclude the West from their country proved fruitless due to the divide over isolation and adopting Western technologies for strength. The Bakufu's decision to form treaties created an atmosphere ripe for change as terrorism escalated and those loyal to the emperor organized the overthrow of the Tokugawa while the surrounding world moved into modernization. Thank you for listening to this episode, and I hope you listen to the episodes I've put out, if you haven't already. I know I don't have many subjects to choose from at this time, but there are more episodes on the way. If you have listened to the Personal Histories episode, I mentioned that I had run out of my backlog due to unforeseen circumstances. This means that I'm going to have to take a small break while I prepare new episodes. 
I have several books that I want to read and discuss, such as The Fall of the Berlin Wall, The Boxer Rebellion, the 1981 Irish Hunger Strike, and one over an early female abolitionist from the U.S. I also have more chapters from Makers of Modern India and the source from these episodes, The Rise of Modern Japan. Plus, I plan to buy new books, and there's always the library. Ever since I started the show, I have learned a lot. Not only learning from these books, but also how to run a podcast, becoming more in tune with my friends and family, and understanding the importance of community. I was afraid of releasing the show because I thought I would get lost in the sea of all the podcasts out there. And while I haven't obtained the fame I strive for, the smallest recognition I have received so far has been encouraging and uplifting, and I want to thank you for listening so far. So while I take this break, I plan to adjust my research tactics so I can officially put out new episodes faster without interruptions like this. But I also want to improve on my makeshift studio while I have this time. I will be back soon, and in the meantime, I would like to re-record the Apache Wars series as well. If you'd like to stay updated on new episodes, please follow me on Instagram at Why We Are Here Podcast and on Twitter at Why We're Here Pod. If you have any comments or suggestions for new topics, you can email me at whywearehearepodcast at gmail.com. I hope to be back very soon to find out why we're here.